So a few things before we get started. First, uh, I want to begin by welcoming, we have a, a few guests here tonight, um, some seniors from here in Columbia that go to the crossings. Let's just say, hey, welcome guys, glad you're here. Um, really excited to have all you guys here. The second thing I want to say is tonight we're going to take a quick sidestep away from our series through the book of Proverbs um, to kind of do a one-off talk on an issue that I think is, is really important, that's very pressing for us today. Um, and so I'll just kind of get us into it like this. You know, it's not every day that a former George W. Bush speechwriter uh, writes the cover story for a progressive magazine like The Atlantic, and yet that's exactly what happened this February. The title of the article was called How to Build an Autocracy, and of course, the, the, the man being silhouetted is Donald Trump. It's an article not just about Donald Trump, it's an article about the nature of power. And if you went to the student center today and you looked at the little magazine rack that they have there under the registers, you'd realize that Donald Trump, he is not a cover story, he is the cover story. He has been on the front cover of People, The New Yorker, Harper, Esquire, Daily News, The Economist, even conservative magazines like the National Review have put him on the front cover criticizing him. But yet again, it's not really all about Donald Trump entirely. It's about power. It's about what do we do about power? How do we use power? How do we respond to power, to abused power? Is there a place for resistance when it is abused? And this is a big national question that a lot of people are asking and a lot of people are feeling. But it's not just a national question. It's a question that we're feeling right here at Mizzou. In fact, just this last Tuesday, I was walking through Speaker Circle and I saw this. Um, and so I snapped a picture of it because it, it just hit home to me, this question of power. It says this, it says, no one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. And obviously, it's a bunch of uh, women's hands flipping off Jesse Hall, which, you know, <laughs> that's symbolic. Uh, but I saw this and it struck me because it's not just a national question. What do we do about power? How do we respond to power? Is power a problem? It's a question we're asking right here on Mizzou's campus. We've been asking it ever since the hunger strike and concerned student 1953. And a lot of us feel today, and it's a question that we in this room even have. In fact, just this last January, so just a few months ago, one of you guys Facebook messaged me. And this is what you wrote me. I I asked for, for permission to share this before I just read it from everybody. This was the question. How should Christians respond if they are under the power of an unjust ruler? To what extent is rebelling against an unjust ruler okay? And, and she wasn't particularly talking about Donald Trump. It's just obvious that these questions about power, they're in the air. Whether or not you personally feel it, the world around you and a lot of the people around you are. They're asking, what do we do about power? Is power itself a problem? Is there a place for resistance when it comes to abused power? How could and how should Christians resist? These are a lot of big questions. And what I want you to realize is that these aren't just contemporary questions. They're actually very ancient questions. Because you see, the world has always had power. It doesn't matter where you're at in history. It's always been there. And the Bible is full of stories that tell us things about the nature and use of power. And in fact, in my opinion, one of the best stories out there to answer these questions is one that most of us already know. But we don't tend to think about it as a power story. It's a story of David 
and Bathsheba. Maybe one you've heard of, maybe one you haven't, but it's the story of David, a king, a man with power. And Bathsheba, and, and, and there's a foreigner, a foreign husband, there's military commanders, there's scandals, plots, lust, murder. I mean, this is a story about power. And it has a looming question. In the midst of all of this mess that we're about to unfold, where is God? I think that's a question a lot of Christians have been asking, even in the last five months, maybe for the last year. In the midst of all of these different power questions, power struggles, where is God in that? What does God have to say? And that's what I'm, I'm hoping we can answer, at least in small part, tonight. But before we do, let's, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, whether or not we ourselves are confused by the nature of power or we ourselves are asking these questions, we know people who are. And so tonight, our, our political parties want to tell us what to believe, our friends want to tell us to believe, our family members want to tell us to believe, our sociology professors want to tell us what to believe. And you know what we need, God, is we need your spirit to tell us what to believe. We need you to shine the light of your truth into our heart. So we pray that you would do that this evening. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to hop straight into this story. It, it takes place in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5 is where we're going to start. It'll be on the screen. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, so David is the king of Israel, uh, sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants with him into all Israel. So that's the whole military. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So the Ammonites were a foreign power that they were at war with. Rabbah was their capital city. But David remained at Jerusalem. That's the capital of Israel. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So this story is written in classic Hebrew style. It's full of irony and ambiguity. And I think what the author is trying to get us to do is he's trying to shake us up. He's trying to get us to ask a bunch of questions at this point. And I want to make sure that we ask the right questions. So to do that, I, I got to begin by dispelling a commonly kind of thought error here that I've heard taught multiple times. So when we read about Bathsheba on the roof bathing, we imagine a woman standing on a roof naked bathing herself. And what you've got to understand is that that's not what was going on. The word for bathing there is the word for a ritual cleansing. And these cleansings would have been done with your clothes on, actually. So no way she was naked. And I've also heard people say that she's trying to seduce David. But yet again, that's not right here. This isn't an act of seduction. This is an act of devotion to God. And that's where the good questions start. Because all of a sudden, we're wondering, David, what's motivating you? Is it lust? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's lust. But this is like lusting during a baptism. What happens to your heart when you're like, yeah. <laughs> that's what's happening here. And the questions, they start getting even darker because all of a sudden, in verse uh, 3, we learn that her husband, Uriah, is a Hittite. 
That little detail is there for a reason because a Hittite is a foreigner, a foreign person. And now all of a sudden we're wondering, wait a second, is David not just motivated by lust? Is he motivated by nationalism? Maybe even by racism? Is he sitting here thinking, how is it that such a beautiful Israelite woman could be married to a foreigner? I have to do something about that. Now at this point, we're only looking at David's heart, his lust, his nationalism, his racism. And that's a lot of times all that we tend to look at in this passage. But I want to ask a bigger question here and say, is this just about David's individual heart? Or is this about something bigger? Does this have the questions of, of the institution of the monarchy, of the system, of, of the power that David has? Is that what the author is trying to get us to start thinking about here? And I think the answer to that question is yes. And to see why the answer is yes, we have to see where this story fits into the bigger picture of 1st and 2nd Samuel. You see, all the way back, 400 years before this, God told Moses what the king was supposed to do. Do I have any of my leadership team guys in here? What's the king supposed to be? Come on, one of you guys. I'm testing them. That's why I have Ross here. That was good. That was the right answer, Ross. Good job. You passed the test. The king was to be the ideal Israelite. He was to be the embodiment of the king, Yahweh, on earth. He was to spread God's love, justice, mercy, and goodness throughout the entire land of Israel. That was the king's role and responsibility. So 400 years later, Israel has her first kings. And the question that First and Second Samuel ask us is, what kinds of kings are they going to get? And what's going to be the consequence of the kind of kings that they are? Are they going to be the kind of kings that God wants? Are they going to be a different kind of king? If they're a different kind of king, how will that not just impact them, but the people, the nation, God's mission on earth? You see, First and Second Samuel has very much so in view questions about the use of power, about the institution of monarchy. It is trying to make us think about these questions And that this story, up until now, David has been the right kind of king, but this story is like a hinge. And all of a sudden, we see something different. So you can think about it this way. If you just think about David's heart, me by myself, if I don't have this microphone on, I might be able to yell really loud and and talk to everybody in this room, right? There's a limitation to how loud I can be, though. If you give me a microphone and a big enough amplification system, all of a sudden, I can talk to hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people if it's big enough. And that's exactly what the power does for David. You see, on his own, he's only able to do so much. But since he has the power of a king, it's like a microphone, an amplification system that takes those desires that are already in his heart and blows them up. You see, it's because he's king that in verse uh, 4, he can take her. It's a strong word. He can lay with her. And most disturbingly here, we never get the answer to the most obvious question. Does she consent? And I wonder if that question's somewhat besides the point because he's the king. Could she have said no to begin with? See, this is about the use of power, the abuse of power. This is about what happens when you have the wrong kind of king. It's dark, it's disturbing, and it's supposed to be. So what do we learn about power from this? Well, we learn that abuses of power, they begin in the heart. But they get amplified and they get reinforced and re-entrenched by the power systems that we 
are a part of. And I think that this is a really radical idea because it militates against two commonly held positions. It militates against those on the right who tend to want to ignore questions of institutions and systems. And it says, no, it's not just about your individual sins. We live in a community. You have power. And as a result, what's inside of your heart gets amplified. It affects everybody. You have to keep the whole in view. And yet it also militates against those on the left who want to ignore issues like morality and character and call them preferences or things that we have to deal away with with therapy. See, it says unjust systems, they aren't built in a vacuum. They're built by sinful hearts. Now, when I talk about these big ideas of (laughs) hearts and systems and institutions, some of you are, you just start getting overwhelmed by this. It doesn't make sense or you just like, well, what do I do? So let's try and make this personal. Try and make this really personal. I think this is calling us to do two different things. First and foremost, it's calling us to take an audit of our own heart's desires. I mean, I'm not sure how self-aware David really was in this situation, but how self-aware are we? Are we aware of our kind of misanthropic sexual desires? Are we aware of our patriotism and nationalism and when maybe that's a little bit out of control? Are we aware of how we see and feel about people of different races? Those are the interior kind of questions. This is calling us to take an audit of. Do you see corruption in those areas? It doesn't just call us to take an audit of the heart. It calls us to take an audit of our own power. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm a college student. I have no money. I have no power. (laughs) You might have power. I don't have any power. And, you know, on one level, true enough, but every person in this room does have power, right? Some of you guys, you're on the exec board for your uh, fraternity or your sorority. That's power. Others of you guys, you're volunteers in a volunteer organization, so you oversee people or you serve people. That is power. Whether it's in a group project or, or wherever it's at, all of us have different roles where we have power. This is calling us to take seriously those things and ask, how do I use that power? Uh, conversely, there's kinds of power that we have that oftentimes we don't tend to acknowledge because it's the kind of things that we're born with, right? So, for example, our, our nationality might give us power. Our ethnicity, our gender, these are different things that can give us privilege and power. And the question here is, how are you going to use that? Do you see any corruption in that? You see, where we see corruption, the Bible has a really radical answer. It's called repentance. And repentance is this idea of turning from one thing to a different thing. And when we repent, we don't just turn to God so that he'll forgive us and let go of the consequences of how we've used our power and the sin that's in our hearts. It's far more than that. It's turning to God so that he would restore us, so that he would take us and put us into his system. His way of working in the world. Reorient the power that we have for his purposes of love, justice, mercy, and human flourishing. That's what repentance looks like. Now, as I'm talking, I'm sure there's a ton of questions going through your head. Some of you guys are thinking, are you telling me right now that I should feel guilty for the power I have? Like, because I have this position, or because of my skin color, my gender, my nationality, are you telling me that like, because of these things I should feel bad? And there's others of you who are like, no, everything he's saying is right. And in fact, power is the problem. If you just get rid of power, if you just make everything equal, then we have a real solution on our hands. Power is the problem. Well, yet again, I think this text 
It has some surprising, some, some interesting answer to precisely those questions. It doesn't go the direction we expect. So let's keep reading. In verses uh, 6 to 15, we read this. So David sent word to Joab, that's his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a kind of sexual euphemism. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed a present from the king. So the king kind of sends him like a wine and grape package, like go down, have a fun night with your wife, you know, enjoy yourself here. But, and this is a big but, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark, that's God and God's presence, and Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths, tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul is, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, okay, well, remain here for, uh, today also and tomorrow, and then I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. At the end of the book of Joshua, about four or five hundred years before this, Joshua says to all the people of Israel, he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the living God or will you serve the idols? Choose who you're going to serve. And all of history that comes after him in the Bible might be seen as a kind of extended commentary on that question. Who are you going to serve? And this text has an ironic and sad answer to that question. Because David, the Israelite king, chooses to serve himself. Whereas Uriah, the foreigner, chooses to serve God and his friends we see it in a number of places. I mean, just look how David uses his power to serve himself. He uses his power to send for Uriah. He uses his power to try and force Uriah to go down to his house and sleep with his wife to cover up what he's done. He then uses his power to get Uriah drunk. And it all culminates when he uses his power by Uriah's own hand to have Uriah murdered on the front lines. But then we contrast that with Uriah. You know, Uriah... He has power too here. He has the power of choice. He could choose to go down and sleep with his wife. He could choose to do a lot of different things. What's interesting is that Uriah, he refuses to do it. Why? Well, the answer why comes in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, I won't do it because the ark, that's God himself, and the rest of the military, they're all intense. You kind of get the point. He's saying, look, if all of my friends and God himself, if they're all intense, suffering during war, how can I go down to my house to be with my wife? No way. No way. I'm going to show solidarity with them. I'm going to use the little power I have to serve them, to be with them, rather than to serve myself and go be with my wife. 
See, Uriah has power, but he uses it to serve God and to serve others. See, what we learn about power here, and to answer some of the questions that we had, is that power is not a problem in of itself. Power becomes a problem when we use it to serve ourselves, when we use it to serve anything or anyone except for God. The converse of that, though, is that power is a gift. It's a good thing when we use it to serve God and his purposes. Uh, This last December, uh, I was at home with my daughter, Iris, and she she had a really bad cold. She was pretty sick, um, and it was freezing outside. So cold, in fact, that some power lines came down. And so as a result, the power went out in our house. And our electric, our our heat is electric. It's electric powered. So the minute the power went out, we lost our heat. And as every 30 minutes goes by, I'm watching on the thermostat and and we're losing a degree and another degree and another degree and another degree. And I'm sitting here with my daughter like, well, she's sick. Where do I take her? She needs a nap. What what am I going to do with her? It's getting colder and colder. And in the midst of that kind of frantic, what do we do? How long is this going to take? I had this realization that my life, I am surrounded by power, by electric power, and it's such a gift. Because of power, I'm able to keep my house warm in the middle of a frigid December. Because of power, I can keep my food uh, cold in the refrigerator. And yet the same electric power that, that keeps my family alive and flourishing and healthy that same power can charge a cell phone that sends a hateful tweet. It can light the lights of a predatory lender. It can be used to build bullets and missiles. Power can be used for a lot of different things, for great good or great evil. And human power is no different. It can be used to bring flourishing and justice and love and goodness, or it can be used to deconstruct and destroy See, some of you guys, when I started talking about things like your skin color, your nationality, your gender, you started shutting down at that point. You're like, yeah, I have nothing to do with this. Well, I think this tells us something. It says, should you feel guilty for those things? No. (laughs) There's nothing to feel guilty about there. But the Bible wants to ask a better question that too few people ask, and it's this. How do you use the power that you have? How will you use the privilege, the opportunity, the positions that you hold? Are you going to use it to serve yourself or will you use it to serve God? If you're on your sorority exec team, how can you use the power, the voice that you have there to bring flourishing, life, goodness into your sorority? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Or maybe you have economic power. Maybe you're someone like me. I, I, I graduated without any loans. My parents paid for my entire education. There's some of you guys like that out there. How could you use that power of being economically free to bless other people? Maybe you take a job for two years after graduation where you don't make any money, but you can go serve people, and you don't have to worry about it because you don't have debt like everybody else. That would be a good way to use that power. Uh, Others of you guys, you know, maybe you're in a small group, right? You're a small group leader, a small group member. That's power. How are you going to use that power? Are you going to use it just to serve yourselves and be about yourselves? I I know one small group that they made it their personal mission to become a home for all of the awkward, outcast, depressed, lonely, and anxious people. And most small groups shrink over time. This small group just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Because they said, we have some power and we're going to use it to bless, to bring goodness. 
Maybe you're someone like me, you know, I'm a white American male. How can you use what privilege and power you have there to bless others? Maybe some of you are being called to go off to law school, not to go and make a bunch of money as a lawyer, but instead to use the education you have to make the system that we're all a part of more just, more equitable, to give more opportunity for those who look different than you. That would be an interesting use of power, isn't it? That's what this passage is talking about. But I think this passage also brings up a problem because we can use power rightly, but What happens when the power abusers defeat the people who use power rightly? Verse 16, we see this happen. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uriah did all the right things. He used his power in all the right ways, and he dies. That's the consequence. So the question we have to face at that point is when evil overpowers good, is there a place for resistance? Is there a place to use our power in the service of God that resists the injustices committed by abused power? And I think that this text gives us three different forms of resistance, two of which are not commended, one of which is, and the first one is violence. We see it in verse one, right? The Ammonites are fighting against David. And this has nothing to do with Uriah, by the way, but it's just worth pointing out. Violence has historically been the number one way that people respond and resist to power. And today, I I think we see it in our modern discourse. We're not throwing bombs at each other. But you hear it in closed rooms when you're talking with people you agree with and you talk about those people. And there's the vitriol, there's the anger, there's the hatred. It happens on our Facebook pages, it happens on our Twitter feeds. That's where the violence comes out. But hear me when I say this, violence only breeds more violence. A violent overthrow only leads to another set of violent rulers. So that's not the answer. The second option we see here is what I call armchair resistance, which isn't going to make any sense until I get through it. So let's just hop back into the story. It's what Joab does. So in verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises against you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Okay, so what the heck is going on here? (laughs) Who is Abimelech and Jerubasheth? Okay, so Abimelech is a guy who lived hundreds of years before David. And he was, to the Israelite mind, the quintessential example of a power abuser. He was the anti-king. He was everything a king wasn't supposed to be. So this is kind of like the modern equivalent of someone comparing, you know, Barack Obama or Donald Trump to Richard Nixon. You know what someone's saying when you compare someone to Richard Nixon. And that's exactly what Joab does. He says, David, you're being like Abimelech. So what we have to hear here is that Joab is resisting. He protests. 
But we also have to notice this. Even as he protests, he still carries out David's order. He still allows Uriah to be killed. This is why I call it armchair resistance. And this is why I, you know, personally find myself most guilty of this. This is the person who, you know, when something bad's happening, we'll kind of shake our heads. We'll say, ah, that's a bad play. That was the wrong thing to do. Ah, that's a real shame. But we'll never get off the chair. We'll never get into the game. We'll never put our skin on the line, right? Especially when doing so is a risk to us. Just like an armchair quarterback, we're armchair resistors. We'll say no, we'll say that's bad, but there'll be no action, no real response on our part. That's what Joab does. And we see that it causes no change whatsoever. So what's the third form of resistance? We don't get to it until the very, very last sentence of the very, very last verse when a character who we've been waiting to hear from finally measures in. It's God. And this is what he says in verse 27. The thing which David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's so evil, in fact, that there are some immediate results. In chapter 12, God deals with David's heart. He leads him to repentance. And then in chapters 13 to 24, he deals with the system that allowed David to have this power. There's a literal civil war that happens as a result, as a consequence of what David did here. But to see how God resists David's evil abuse of power, we have to step back and see how God resists all evil uses of power. How God resists the abuses of power that kind of lie behind darkly all contemporary abuses of power. And it starts by going all the way back to what the king was supposed to do. Remember, he was supposed to be the ideal Israelite, the guy who spread God's kingdom of love, justice, and mercy across the entire nation. But Psalm 72 says it's not just across the entire nation. It's supposed to go from sea to sea. It's supposed to spread out from Israel into the whole world. That was the king's mission, to spread God's justice. And we find out here, David is not that king. David's not that king. And this is why Jesus came as a son of David, so that he could be that king. You see, he took all of his divine power, and he doesn't call down legions of angels to destroy the Romans. He doesn't just sit on his armchair in heaven and kind of say, that's bad play. He uses his power to become a servant. And everywhere that he went in the land of Israel, he brought God's love, justice, and mercy. He gave sight to the blind. He lifted up the humble. He tore down the proud. He freed the oppressed. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. Everywhere he went, it was like heaven was on earth because heaven was on earth. And he didn't just stop there. He took on the role of the victim. He became the person who the abusing powers were abusing. He, he was the one who the Romans, who the Jewish powers, put on the cross and oppressed. But he didn't just take their worst blow. He took the blow of the dark powers behind them, sin, the devil, death itself. And when he took that blow on the cross, he left them weaponless. And when he rose again through his sacrificial death, he subverted, he overthrew the dark powers that were controlling the world. And here's what we learned from all of that. On a cosmic scale, sacrificial love, sacrificial love, that is the only effective way to resist, to subvert, 
and to disrupt power. That is the only way that actually changes anything. Some of you guys probably heard about the bombing in uh, Egypt that killed 44 Coptic Christians. Um, and if you heard about it, you might not, however, realize that this kind of violence against Christians in Egypt is really nothing new. Um, it's been happening for decades there. And in fact, in, in May of, uh, sorry, not May, the, the new year of 2011, there was a similar attack in a church where 23 Christians were killed. And a guy named uh, Nader Wanis, an Egyptian multimedia owner who also happened to be a Christian, when he, when he heard about this attack, he didn't know what to do. Of course he was angry, of course he was hurt. But he looked around at his community, and he saw a community where there was no education. In particular, there was no arts education. He saw kids just running around in the street, didn't have anything to do with their time. And then he looked at his church, this big Anglican cathedral, and he thought, there's hardly any of us Christians here. This place is practically empty. And so he came up with this idea. He said, what if we used our Anglican church and we turned it into a cultural center for Muslim kids? What if we did that? So he went to the uh, leaders of the church. He said, I have a lot of money. I'll, I'll put it at this. And they came together and they all agreed. They agreed even knowing that churches had been rioted and burned down because Muslim women had walked into them. That they were going to put their life and their resources at risk by opening up their doors to try and bless these children. And yet they said, you know what? Our response to the violence, to the hatred, is to take the money we have, the places we have, everything we have and sacrifice them to bless our community, to bless the very people who are attacking us. Six years later, that community center has flourished. It's grown. There are countless Muslims who their first experience going inside of a Christian church and meeting a Christian person happened because of their sacrificial love. And when he heard about this attack that killed 43 Christians, he said that in this week where we remember Christ's sufferings, he hopes that the families of the victims will be comforted, but he hopes that the people who perpetrated the attack will know the love and peace of Jesus. I don't know how you get your heart there to love people who hurt you so deeply, so much. See, I don't know. Like I said, I'm an armchair resistor. That's my MO. But some of you guys here, you are being called to be the people to show us, to figure out what it looks like for us in our time, in our generation, to sacrifice, to resist through sacrificial love. So that slow guys like me, we can follow along and learn from you. I don't know what it looks like, but have you asked with the power that you have, how do I sacrifice, how do I give to change? Sacrificial love is God's answer to abuse power. The cross is how Jesus responds and it's how he calls us to respond too. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your spirit, your grace to empower us. Because I, first and foremost, none of us have it in ourselves to give of ourselves so deeply. But it's precisely because you are at work in us, because your spirit's at work in us, that we can sacrifice. It's because you reign in heaven that we know there's an expiration date on all abused power, on all evil. Jesus, inspire us, guide us, and lead us to faithfully love you, to use our power for your love, justice, and mercy. And if there's a time for resistance, to do so with love and charity. It's your name that we pray. Amen.